it has since become a legend that whoever possesses his holy lands and understands the powers it serves holds in his hand the destiny of the world for good or evil. with another edition of Ben All of America Audio. It is March 4th, 2006. We kick off March with Jerry E. Smith, Part 1 of 2. Jerry is the co-author of Secrets of the Holy Lance, The Spear of Destiny in History and Legend. And that is what we're discussing this week, uh, The Spear of Destiny, also known as the Holy Lance or the Spear of Longinus. Uh, it is infamous in the esoteric world for its role in the Passion, and also recently its role in World War II. Jerry and his co-author George Picard have done an amazing job chronicling the journey of the spear from the Passion all the way up to World War II and post-World War II, and some of the controversies surrounding where it's been since then, and all the various rulers and factions that have had their hands on the spear in uh, the 2,000 years in between. So that's what we're discussing in this lengthy interview with Jerry E. Smith. We bring you part one this week, which is the Spear of Longinus, its origins, the passion, the story of the spear, relics in general, Longinus the man, where he went post-passion. And then we trace the various folks who've had their hands on the spear leading up to Hitler, where we leave you off to wait till next week for the World War II portion of the Spear discussion. So we cover a ton of ground this week, and of course there's tons more next week, but I'll preview that on the tail end of the interview. Here's a little bit about Jerry E. Smith, for those of you who are unfamiliar with him. Jerry E. Smith has been a writer, editor, and activist for over three decades. He may be best known in the esoteric world for his book, Harp, the Ultimate Weapon of the Conspiracy. In 1991, Jerry Smith and Jim Keith, author of Black Helicopters Over America, Strike Force for the New World Order, and other numerous conspiracy and mind control books, founded the National UFO Museum, NUFOM, in Reno, Nevada. From 1991 to 1994, Jerry was the executive director of NUFOM, while Mr. Keith acted as the chairman of the board. In addition to his administrative duties running the day-to-day operations of NUFOM, Jerry also edited and wrote for that organization's quarterly journal, Notes from the Hangar. At the same time, Jerry worked as an editor, graphic artist for Jim Keith's magazine, Dharma Combat, the magazine of spirituality, reality, and other conspiracies. Jerry served variously as managing editor and art director from Dharma Combat's inception in 1988 until Jim's untimely death in 1999. Today, he lives and continues to write in Reno, Nevada. His websites are jerryesmith.com and secretsoftheholylance.com, which you can also get to by typing in spearbook.com. Without any further ado, let's kick it off. This interview was recorded on February 12, 2006. 
Jerry E. Smith, part one of two on Banal of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome my guest this week, Jerry E. Smith. He's the co-author of Secrets of the Holy Lands. He's also written an awesome harp book. Hopefully he can tell us a little bit about that towards the end, but we're really here to talk about Secrets of the Holy Lands. Jerry Smith, those of you who are uninformed, is a writer, editor, and activist for over three decades. His bibliography of published works includes scores of articles and reviews, over a dozen ghostwritten books, and two non-fiction works from Adventures in Limited Press, Harp, The Ultimate Weapon of the Conspiracy, and this new book, Secrets of the Holy Lands, The Spear of Destiny in History and Legend. So welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Uh... First of all, why don't you just do a little bit of uh, like a bio for yourself and, and how you got into the esoteric field in general, because you say you've been doing this for over three decades. Right. Well, it, it goes back uh, really to grade school. I, I started reading science fiction at age at age eight with uh, Robert E. Heinlein's Have Space Suit, Will Travel. Uh, got involved in the zine scene in the 60s before it was the zine scene, back when it was still the, all the zines were in science fiction fandom, and uh, there were little literary magazines in those days. Uh, and uh, the, the zine scene of what was it, the 70s, 80s, came out of science fiction fandom where I was back in the 60s. I uh, did a bunch of zines, uh, and at that time was working with Jim Keith, and uh, Jim Keith and I did zines together in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, until Jim's death uh, in 99. The last zine we did together was called Dharma Combat, the magazine of spirituality, reality, and other conspiracies. Nice. Uh, uh, I've been, uh, uh, I think my first professional writing credit Again, goes to Jim. Uh, Jim Keith and Jim Schumacher were writing a book together, uh, doing alternate chapters, and Jim w was writing the last chapter. And it happened, I dropped into his house. Uh, this is we're all we're teenagers at the time. Oh, wow. uh, I'm 16. He, the, the the two Jims are both 17. Uh, and uh, Jim's girlfriend Carla shows up, and uh, Jim and I, Jim had been having trouble figuring out the end of the book, and I made some suggestions, Carla shows up and he says, okay, you finish the book. He leaves with her and I finish the book. Oh, man. Um, I'm, I have long since lost track of how many books I've, I've written because uh, most of them uh, don't have my name on it. Uh, from, uh, I did a, a lot of uh, ghost written and, and man, manuscript correction where uh, guys with, who were who, who had a good idea but really couldn't write would come to me and I'd clean up their manuscripts. And some of them sold and some of them didn't. And some of them, I'm not quite sure which ones were which, you know. So uh, yeah. uh, I think altogether I worked on uh, about 40 books. Of oh, wow. Which, of which uh, uh, about 12 of them were written wholly by me. And did he span like the whole uh, range of esoteric topics or was he like mainstream type books or what? A variety of things. Uh, uh, I, I, I tried. Uh, I tried getting into fiction, so I, I, I've written a couple of science fiction books and a western, and uh, 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 some mainstream. And uh, I even tried. Uh, I, I wrote a, 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 a romance. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, you know, I'm just. 
dabbling at it, and then, uh, and then I got into uh, into nonfiction, and really, really hit my stride with nonfiction. And un unfortunately, my first nonfiction book still hasn't sold. Oh man! Uh, uh, I wrote it on spec, and that was the last book I've written on speculation. You know, yeah. you, know you know, if you're a home builder, you can build a home on spec and pretty much assume sooner or later you're going to sell it. You write a book on spec and. Uh, sometimes it just sits in your in, in your filing cabinet for the next decade or two. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that that book was toppling the pyramid: a practical guide to overthrowing the new world order. <laughs> I can see maybe why it, why it hasn't been printed yet. Yeah, um, keeping it down. So uh, my next book was Harp, the Ultimate Weapon of the Conspiracy, and it, it uh, I cannibalized a lot of stuff out of uh, out of Toppling to go in in Harp. But uh, uh, my book about Harp is not about how Harp works. It's about if Harp works, who would want to do that? It's about the politics, uh, the, the the geopolitical politics around uh, uh, the, the the coming global government that uh, that is that I use as a as as the focus of the book, and it's just uh, harp. In, it, it has a potential to to be used, or electromagnetic technologies, radio technologies have have a potential to be used by those folks to further their end. So that's what that book's about. And then uh, the most recent one, is Secrets of the Holy Lands, this came out last July. Uh, I, and uh, the way that one happened was. Uh, my publisher uh, is Adventures Unlimited Press, David Hector Childress, and uh, David has, uh, sells a lot of books in his catalog that that he didn't publish. That they, you know he has you know the, the the publishing house has been in existence for 22, 23 years, and he's published about 150 titles during that 20-year run. But he's also sold thousands of other titles. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, a couple of titles in his catalog that were selling rather briskly for him were the two books by Colonel Howard Buchner, uh, Hitler's Ashes and Adolf Hitler and Secrets of the Holy Lands. And also uh, Trevor Ravenscroft's uh, The Spirit of Destiny and uh, his follow-up book uh, The Cup of Destiny and Mark of the Beast. And so um, uh, my publisher, David Hector Childress, got this bright idea that if he had a book on the subject that he published, then he didn't, then, then he wouldn't have to sell those books. And instead of making pennies per book, he'd make dollars per book. Yeah. So he, he gave me a call uh, last summer, and at that time I was working on the book I'm currently working on, which was uh, is uh, Chemtrails, Harp, and Weather Warfare, the Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. Oh, nice. And I was about six months into that book, and David gave me a call and said, "Hey, I got I, the, the Spirit of Destiny is a huge selling thing. Can you write me a book on the subject?" And I and and you know I had read um, uh, I had read Trevor Ravenscroft back when it came out in the early seventies, and I had I, I had a lot of interest in the subject, and I had been um, oh. 20 years, no, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I had been researching whether or not Hitler really died in the bunker, and that got me into researching uh, uh, Nazi disc aircraft, uh, and that led to my becoming the executive director of the National UFO Museum in the early 90s. Uh, what had happened was is I had discovered that, that, it, that there was very good evidence that the Nazis had, in fact, built disc aircraft, 
And one day, Jim Keith and a buddy of ours known as Crazy Larry were sitting around in my office, and uh, I'm, we're talking about this, and Crazy Larry starts going, hey, I can build one of those. You give me the plans, and I'll build one. I go, I go okay, well, you know, the plan's got to be somewhere. So um, I, I, my first thought was there must be a UFO museum somewhere in the world, and I'll just write them and get the plans. Well, of course, there wasn't one. Yeah. So, um, so, I, so being a, being a, a do-it-yourselfer from way back, I, I started one. Uh, it was in uh, this is in Reno, Nevada, and in Reno there were a bunch of other museums that were the national this, that, or the other. There's the National Automobile Museum, the National uh, Championship Air Race Museum, a, a number of these national museums. So I decided that we should just join the club, and we were the National UFO Museum. Well, um, some old-time ufologists in Roswell, New Mexico, decided to start their museum, and they. Um, they uh, uh, decided they had to one-up us, so so they're the international UFO museum. <laughs> so um, uh, I say to David, okay, yeah, I I know quite a bit about the, some aspects of this subject. I'd be happy to write a book about it. And he goes, okay, fine. I want it in two months. Oh man, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it took me two years to write the heart book. Oh wow, uh, and so um. Uh, my friend George Picard also lives in Reno, and George uh, had a book uh, through David Hatcher Childress, Adventures Unlimited Press. Of um, uh, George's book was about Operation Paperclip, which brought Nazi spy masters and rocket scientists to the U.S. at the end of World War II, yeah. and uh, led to the creation of NASA and CIA, which uh, which may have led to the to uh, what looks today like the Fourth Reich. And so uh, I'm, I'm looking at, at the Spear book and thinking, well, you know, this is a good area. You know, the Nazi connection to, to the Spear was huge. Uh, Adolf Hitler, it, it was, it was the, the center of um, uh, Trevor Raven's cross book. So I thought, you know, if, 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 uh, if, uh, if George should definitely be on this, so I, I give George a call and ask him if he wants to write a book. And he, he's thinking, uh, you know, it's been several years since his book, uh, his book is Liquid Conspiracy, JFK, LSD, the CIA, Area 51, and UFOs. And so we're both on the same page on a number of subjects here. And, and he was thinking it's been a number of years since his book came out, and, and it would look good in his resume to have another book. So he goes, oh, okay, sure, what the heck, yeah, I'll, I'll help. And so uh, we we split the we, we split the book up, and George uh, George wrote the, most of the Nazi stuff, and I wrote most of everything else. And uh, the, it was it was hilarious in that uh, uh, we each started by first drafting our section and then passing it over to the other. Yeah. And, and uh, George would write his chapters and pass them to me, and I'd add to them. I'd write my chapters, pass it to George, and he'd subtract from them. <laughs> Well, let me ask you, uh, like, a sort of um, a technical question, I guess, because I had never seen this before in a book that I'd read. You started with Chapter Zero. Right. Um, the, the heart book starts with Chapter Zero, uh, the, and then I decided to, to continue it. Uh, actually, George and I, were, were, uh, it ends, the, 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 the Spear book ends with Chapter Double Zero. Yeah, that was so it's, thing, yeah. it's odd and double odd. Yeah. As in, as in Buckshot. Is that like a stylistic choice? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was very much so. Um, it, it got started with the heart book in that I, I wrote a chapter one for the heart book, and people kept 
complaining. I mean, when I was passing it around to, to readers before I sent it to the publisher, they were saying that it wasn't grabby enough, that I had to write a, a grabby introduction. So I wrote another first chapter and put the put it in front of chapter one, so that it had to be chapter zero. Yeah. So then, um, what we did, what we decided to do with the Spear book is that each chapter begins with a dramatization. Each chapter has a, a little section in italics at the beginning of the chapter that takes a scene from the chapter and dramatizes it. And so we decided, well, what we're going to do is we're going to do that with every chapter and with the book. So the book begins with a dramatization of a scene from the end of the book. So the book begins and ends with chapter zero, double zero, which is also um, uh, what may be the most important moment in the history of the spear, which is uh, it's claimed that the spear of destiny was hidden in Antarctica and reclaimed in 1979. So the book begins and ends with the spear being reclaimed in 1979, because if that's true, then the spear is not an object hidden in a museum, or you know, not hidden in a church, not on display in a museum, but is actually in somebody's hands being used as a real player on the world stage. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a really cool fact. I, I, like I said, I've never seen that before. Um, and also on the cover of the book, now this is what would be considered uh, the spear today, the mainstream, what, like if you wanted to go see the spear, that's what you'd see, the one that's on the cover? Right, the one that's on the cover is, um, is the one that's in the museum in Vienna. And there are numerous objects around the world claiming to be the spear, and uh, I'm sure we'll, yeah, I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, I just wanted to ask that because, like, as I'm reading the book, I keep flipping back to the cover to sort of like picture it in my mind. So it's cool to know that that I wasn't wrong. <laughs> right, and, and what you see there is um, a, a, um, a, an old spearhead, and in the middle of it is a gold sheath. And if you look very closely, you can see that there is a, a pin or a nail attached to the, the, the spearhead and is, is uh, kind of woven into the spearhead, laced in with, uh, uh, with wire, that's, uh, that's silver wire holding in a nail that supposedly is a nail from Jesus' cross. And then it would, now you say that's the spearhead, so that would attach to like, uh, like a long uh, yeah. staff? A long staff. It would have been about twi the, 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 it, it was reported as being twice a man's height. Oh wow! So the so the spear shaft itself, the, the shaft would have been you know ten twelve feet. And how long is the spearhead? Uh, I think it's something like eighteen or twenty three inches. I don't remember offhand. I'm really really miserable with remembering numbers. <laughs> so it's like a foot and a half to two feet. Uh huh. Oh, okay, so it's not like two. It's not like uh, it's much bigger than on the cover of the book. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, uh, if you saw the movie Constantine, yeah. the, the spear is one of the major characters in the movie, and the, the the very first thing you see is the spear being discovered or found in Mexico, wrapped in a Nazi flag, and you can see that the one he's holding is only about seventeen, eighteen inches long. Yeah. And that, that replica that's used in the movie is just beautiful. Uh, it, it is spectacular. And, you, and, and there are, there are uh, replicas like it on sale on eBay. And you can oh, own really? your own replica. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, okay, so now uh, just getting into the book here, uh, we start out with relics in general, because that's really what the, uh, the Holy Lance is, Spear of Destiny is. Uh, it's a relic. So why don't you tell us about what relics are, 
and uh, just the general concept of relics in where they come from. Great. Um, again, the, the, for those who are unfamiliar with the with it, this is the spear that supposedly pierced the side of Christ as he hung on the cross. Uh, this makes it a relic of the Passion and a relic of Jesus. And the, the, the concept of relics is, is common in virtually every religion. Uh, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, uh, Christians, uh, Buddhists, all have a reverence for, for relics. And it's more than just a reverence. It's more than, you know, the thing is not just a memento or a keepsake because somebody famous used it and you, you, you look at this thing and remember that somebody. But it's, it's believed that uh, the saints, the prophets, the gods were, were supernatural and that the relic, because it was directly physically associated with the prophet, the saint, or God, it has, it has itself been, been imbued with the supernatural. The, the idea is that the, the, the natural world that we live in is subservient to, is, is less important a world than the spiritual world, the supernatural is the real universe. Uh, you know, if we are indeed imperishable, immortal spirits, we live in the supernatural world, and uh, and the world of our senses, the natural world, is is a uh, is a, a, a passing fancy, something we're only going to see for fifty or a hundred years, and then spend the rest of eternity in on the other side. So the the idea is that this. Uh, the other side is, is is always leaking through to this side that there, that that the, the supernatural has a, has a an ongoing daily impact on, on us indeed uh, uh, many surveys over the last few few years have shown that the majority of Americans something like 95 98 percent believe in in the God of the Bible uh, wow. 85 to 90 percent believe in angels 75 to 85 percent believe in demons uh, Americans be uh, believe as their great-great-grandparents have believed as their great-great-great-grandparents have believed that, that there is a there is a, a spiritual world and the spirits move move among us and do things and Part of, of this is uh, is shown shown in the relics, and uh, uh, in Catholicism there are three classes of relic. Uh, a first class relic is something that was actually physically a part of the saint or prophet, such as a, a bone or a hank of hair. Yeah. And then uh, the second stage or second class relic is something uh, associated with that with, with that entity, such as a, a sandal. Uh, uh, and a third class uh, relic is, is something that is brought to the, uh, the, the shrine and is, is touched to the, uh, the, 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 the higher class relic, yeah. such as uh, when uh, the Spear of Destiny was on display in uh, Nuremberg uh, uh, in the 1500s, uh, Queen Isabella of Spain uh, sent a, a piece of muslin uh, to to be pierced by the, the spear in hopes of making it a, a third class relic. Okay, and um, like what is what are some of the examples of, of uh, these relics outside of the more famous uh, spear of destiny and, and, and 
Well, there's the crown of uh, the, the crown of thorns. The, the shroud of Turin is probably the, the most the most famous relic of the Passion. Yeah. But uh, it's also believed that the, that the crown of thorns ex uh, existed, and the, there there are about seventy thorns from the crown of thorns scattered around Europe in in various um, um, temp uh, 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 churches and synagogues or churches and what uh, chapels. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, there are pieces of the True Cross. It's believed that the that the that uh, the pieces of the True Cross are around. In fact, that it was it was quite a little cottage industry for 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 a while, to the point where um, a famous priest. Uh, um, 500 years ago once commented that there were so many pieces of the true cross that you could build a boat from them. <laughs> now, do you think all these, uh, now it seems like, like, like what you just said, there were a lot of relics back in the day. Are there a lot of relics still around today, or is it sort of uh, faded into obscurity relatively because of, you know, skepticism of people in general? Um, you know, I, I would say that it virtually, it, it, any, any Buddhist temple you go to is built around a, 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 a chamber for holding relics called a stupa. In fact, usually the way it goes is they build the stupa and then they build the temple around it. Oh, wow. Um, uh, most, uh, most, most Christian churches in America are relicless. Simply because you know the relics didn't get here. Yeah. But you go to Europe, and and the overwhelming number of, of churches in Europe have uh, have a reliquary somewhere in it, and and a piece of Saint Anne, or a bit of John the Baptist, or you know a bit of this, a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, they're particularly, uh, uh, and and it it, it it seems to be pretty much universal throughout uh, throughout Europe, uh, east and west. Uh, I, I don't know how much people still venerate the relics, but they are definitely there. And you know, the the, um, the argument over some of these just doesn't go away, such as uh, the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. And now moving on to the Holy Lands, um, uh, why don't you go a little in depth about what the Holy Holy Lands was? And like you said, it was the one that it was the lands that pierced the side of uh, side of Christ. Right. Um, now, tell me a little bit about that. What we what we what we know from the Bible from is uh, there are, uh, it's mentioned in four places in the New New Testament, most most uh, prominently in John, uh, where it's telling the story of the crucifixion, and that as, uh, what we uh, what we know is that as uh, crucifixion is a particularly gruesome way to die, uh, you. As long as you can keep pushing up with your legs, you can stay alive. Because the way you die is you don't bleed to death. You don't have in, have serious injuries. What you have is your own weight on your arms, and and uh, your your once you are your full weight is on your arms in crucifixion. Uh, the the the, the uh, chest muscles are are constricted, and you you you, you suffocate. You strangle yourself to death. So uh, as long as you keep pushing up, uh, keep pulling the weight off of your arms, you can stay alive. So it takes many hours. Uh, the, the common crucifixion is 12, 15 hours. Uh, and this is 12 hours of, of hanging there in pain, knowing you're going to die soon, and that you're, you're just, just keep, you know, you know, the, yeah. the uh, yeah. And so 
you you end up being exhausted both mentally and spiritually as well as physically by the time you finally give up and just can't push another time and and it all yeah and uh, and so uh, as it uh, Jesus's crucifixion uh, was scheduled on Friday before Passover and and uh, that's a, a violation of, of several uh, several Jewish laws that uh, that there cannot be if a man is put on a tree he cannot be on the tree on the Sabbath he cannot be killed on the Sabbath he cannot be buried on the Sabbath so um, uh, they had to have him dead and down before sunset because the Sabbath starts at on, on, on uh, at sunset on Friday and last uh, until uh, on till Saturday, dark, where it's dark enough to see three stars. Uh, the uh, so they, as the day wore on, and Jesus and the two common criminals he was crucified with showed no signs of dying anytime soon. The priests went to Pilate and asked Pilate to send some soldiers around to break the legs. With the legs broken, they can't push up and they'll die. Yeah. So the uh, the soldiers went to um, the, the two common criminals first and broke their legs and then came to break Jesus. Now at that point, a centurion steps forward and pierces the body with uh, his spear, showing that Jesus was already dead and so wouldn't need his legs broken. Yeah. Now that's what's covered in the in the new in the New Testament. Uh, also, it mentions that um, uh, when the body was pierced, out came the the water and blood. Now, in um, in the Apocrypha, in some of the books that have been uh, been uh, taken out of the Bible, yeah. such as uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as the Acts of Pilate, we uh, it tells us a great deal more about this this centurion. Uh, supposedly his name was Gaius Cassius Longinus. Um, Gaius Cassius Longinus was elderly and going blind and had spent his entire life in the service of Caesar and was sent to, sent to uh, Judea and then put on um, light duty. And they they take him off of having to to, to do to, do do the uh, the military grunt work and put him on what is essentially uh, an intelligence gathering mission. You might call it you might call it Red Squad. Yeah. Uh, he was sent to follow Christ around and report back on what this uh, agitating leader was doing. And in the process of doing this, he uh, heard many of Christ's sermons, may have seen some of the miracles, yada, yada, and may well have come to, if not be a believer, be teetering on becoming a believer. Yeah. Um, when it, the, the breaking of the bones is, um, is an act of, of, of ignominity. It's something you do only to somebody you hate. And so when... When uh, the soldiers came to break Christ's bones, uh, the, the centurion, uh, Gaius Cassius Longinus, was, was struck with, you know, I don't want to see that happen to, to, to this guy. He, he deserves better. And went up and uh, showed them, you don't have to do, 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 do this guy in because he's already dead. Yes. Now, the story goes that when he did that, the blood and lymph came out, or the blood and water came out, and splashed in his eyes, and instantly cured his blindness. At which point he became a Christian. Yeah. Now the 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 the, the, the numerous objects that are claimed. Oh, I, I forgot one important point. It has since become a legend 
that whoever possesses his holy lands and understands the powers it serves holds in his hand the destiny of the world for good or evil. Yes, that's the big... That is that, why, that, is so that's cool. why it's called the Spear of Destiny, exactly. So, uh, it's also called the Spear of Christ, the Spear of Longinus, and yada yada. Yeah. Um, uh, there are several objects that claim to be it, and the reason is because there is several stories as to what happened to Longinus after the crucifixion. Uh, one of the stories is that he went east, following in the footsteps of Paul, and ended up in or around Armenia. And there is today a, um, a spear uh, or an object in a church in Armenia that they claim is his spear. The, the problem is that everybody who's looked at it says it's not a spear. It's a, a standard head. It's a, it's a flagpole top. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's shaped like a spear. Um, uh, that kind of lets that one out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. Then... Uh, then there's also the story that he never left the Holy Land, that at becoming a, a Christian, uh, he was then persecuted uh, for being a Christian and got himself arrested and uh, put to death with the other Christians uh, there in the Holy Land, and that his spears stayed there. Uh, a spear uh, reported to be his spear was on display in Jerusalem up until about the 6th century. Around the 4th century or 5th century, uh, it got broken and the tip of it got broken off. And the tip was given to uh, a king uh, who took it back to, uh, to what is now France. And that spear head tip remained um, on display until the French Revolution where it vanished. Okay. Uh, the, the, the body of the spearhead um, was, it was last seen in Jerusalem about 640 A.D., and then Jerusalem was overrun by the Muslims. And it turns up again in the 1400s. Uh, and the, the way it turns up is um, the, the caliph, the leader of all the Muslim world, dies leaving two sons and no clear heir. And the two sons have a battle, uh, a war between each other over who's going to end up ruling the Muslim world. Yeah. And one son wins and one son loses. And the losing son bugs out and goes to the Templar Knights, uh, who are also the, the, the Knights Hostiller of St. John. And because they are the Hostillers, they give him hospitality. Yeah. And, and they put him up for a while. And then they decide, you know, this guy would be better with the Pope. And they sent him off to, to, to the Vatican. Now, the, the winning brother realizes that the losing brother knows all kinds of stuff about him. Yeah. And that it would be really good if the Pope didn't learn all this stuff about, uh, about you know, their... Their, their empire. Yeah, right. So, so the, uh, the winning brother, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying their names because I cannot pronounce them. That's <laughs> okay. You know, uh, the, the losing brother's name is usually spelled C-I-Z. Oh man, yeah, uh, and and, and um, uh, in a, in most books, the it's it's uh, uh, the 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 C is a, is a is is got a got a, a, a accent grove at the top, and the Z has got a thingy at the bottom, and I have no idea how to pronounce that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. um, the the winning brother offers to buy the losing brother from the Pope, and offers an obscene amount of money, just a piles of gold yeah. and and the Holy Lands. 
So, so the Pope trades in the, 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 the losing brother who, who dies almost immediately and um, uh, ends up filthy rich. Or I'm sure he already was filthy rich, but he gets a whole lot richer. And, um, and the, um, the, the, the sphere of destiny or the sphere of Longinus uh, moves to the Vatican and stays in the Vatican. And, there's, and it's there now. Uh, from what I've read... The, um, uh, the, the object about a hundred or two hundred years ago was uh, uh, built into, uh, walled up inside a decorative uh, uh, structure that holds up, up a roof over one of the Pope's thrones. Oh, wow. Uh, apparently, the, there's like four posts to hold up this roof, and there's some, some Christian magic item in each of the four posts, <laughs> and one of which being uh, the, the, the sphere of Longinus. Yeah. Now, the, the Catholic Church admits, yeah, we have it, and uh, what's it to you? They, they do not make any claims about it. They do not say it is. They do not say it ain't. They just say, yeah, we got it. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then there is uh, the story that, that uh, uh, Longinus went north. Uh, and this is the story we cover in the in, in our book, uh, Secrets of the Holy Lands, is uh, that remember you you can uh, Christ could not be killed on the Sabbath, nor could he be buried on the Sabbath, and and so the, uh, Joseph of Arimathea claims the body and puts it in his own tomb, um, uh, which gets Joseph in the, in in Dutch with the with the, with the with the Jewish. Uh, uh, Sanhedrin, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Jewish state was uh, a theocracy. The, the, the civil government and the religion were one and the same. Uh, and so uh, he, gets, uh, he gets in trouble with the, with the, with the priests and, and uh, ends up leaving. And uh, the story is, is that he was a, uh, a tin trader, and the tin came from Great Britain or from, from the British Isles. So he and um, uh, Longinus go to Britain, and he forms. Uh, uh, the, the, it's it's um, believed that he cre uh, uh, was part of, of creating Gastonbury Abbey, and uh, the, the Longinus's spear may have moved after Longinus to uh, Queen Boadicea, who led an uprising. And this is this is where the the myths really starts starts to crank in, is that um, Queen Boadicea slaughtered at least twenty five thousand Romans. Oh. Uh, as long as she had the spear, she was invincible. Uh, the Romans only won because they took her, uh, they attacked her at night while she was sleeping, and uh, didn't have didn't ha didn't have a a chance to use it properly in in, in battle against them. Uh, this, this, this belief that the spear makes the it, its claimant uh, invincible is is repeated throughout the next two thousand years, and there are many times where it does indeed seem to make its owner invincible. Um, Charlemagne, uh, uh, eight hundred years later, has the spear, and and Charlemagne. Uh, uh, not only not only wins every battle, but says the spear did it. And indeed, uh, here we see. Uh, I, I know I'm jumping the, the story a little bit here, but this ties in with this whole 
legend of the spear uh, is that uh, the, the legend of the spear includes all these supernatural phenomena that occur around it, uh, probably the most famous of which is Constantine's vision, and I know we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, uh, Charlemagne seems to have uh, what in, in today's terms would be uh, precognizance. He said that with the spear, he, before a battle, he saw how the battle was going to go. The spear showed him the battle, showed him how to win the battle, and so with, the, with this precognitive knowledge, he won 49 out of 49 battles. Oh, wow. Now, the spear is, now the spear that goes uh, from Longinus to Queen Borsia and then uh, Charlemagne and obviously Constantine, this is the one that traces itself to uh, Vienna today, right? That, that's that, what Vienna says? Yeah, that, well, now what, what, what we know about the one in Vienna is much more convoluted than that. Uh, we know that uh, Bodicea had a spear. We do not know if it is if it is indeed uh, launching as a spear or not. But if you do a, a, a Google search on Bodicea, you will see every image of her shows her with with her spear. Yeah. Um, with the next person that is is recorded as having it is Saint Maurice, and, and Maurice was about two hundred years later, uh, uh, maybe one hundred eighty years later. Uh, Maurice was the, the the leader of the Theban Legion. He was a Roman legionnaire who led a legion. And not just any legion. This legion all came from. They were all people recruited or press gang or whatever, around the city of Thebes in, in ancient Egypt. And at this point in time, you know, Thebes had been the capital of a dynastic, uh, of the, the, the later dynasty of Egypt for thousands of years. Um, the, uh, it was known as Thebes of a thousand, uh, uh, Thebes of a thousand gates. Well, a town with a thousand gates is kind of hard to defend, and the Romans sacked it. Yeah. So the uh, the the the, uh, the Egyptians moved their capital to a more defensive location, and eventually uh, uh, the city of Thebes uh, became what is today the city of Luxor. Uh, the the Theban legion were all Christians, and um, Caesar uh, was putting down um, a revolt in Gaul, which is today France. And he needed, um, he didn't have enough legions in France to do it, so he called the Theban legion to join in. And the story goes is that as they marched, uh, uh, they, they sailed to Italy and then marched over the Alps, and their, their marching was so loud, they became known as the Thundering Legion. When they arrived in Gaul, there was, um, there was a, a bit of a problem. The, uh, uh, the, the Romans had a rather odd way of maintaining discipline. They did something called decimation. You may have heard the term, you know, we, we, we decimated them. Well, the word decimation uh, is based on, on the word deca, which is ten. To decimate means to literally kill one in ten. The, the German occupiers during World War II used decimation against uh, um, uh, uh, villages when, a, when, a, when there was a, a, a partisan attack on, uh, on German forces, the, the Germans would go into the town and line up the men and kill one in ten just to make a, make a point. Yeah. Well, the, the Roman legionnaires 
um, if a Roman legion really screwed up, the, the Caesar could order that they decimate themselves, and they would do it. I mean, better, better one in ten than everybody. Exactly, yeah. So um, the, uh, the Theban legion, uh, the thundering legion, arrived in Gaul, and there was a, uh, uh, the Caesar ordered that there should be a celebration to the gods, either before or after the war, it's, uh, after the battle. It's not really clear exactly when this happened. It may have been to, to ask the gods to, to help, or it may have been to thank the gods for their help. But at any rate, um, Caesar maintained he was a god. In fact, he maintained that he was uh, uh, the god Hercules. Uh, and the... Theban Legion refused to name him as a god, refused to say, yeah, you are god. And this pissed the Caesar off. Yeah. So Caesar ordered, you know, if you guys don't claim me god, don't name me god, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decimate you. And they said, okay, do it. So he, he ordered a decimation. And they did it. Uh, and while they're doing it, uh, Maurice, who's the leader of the, of the Legion, holds up the spear of Christ and reminds them with it that they are Christians, and, and, that, and, that, and that there is no king but Jesus. And um, they, uh, they do the decimation and report back to Caesar, well, we've done it, and we're still not going to name you God. At which point Caesar orders a second decimation, and they do it again. And they, they joyously choose lots and, and willingly throw, them, you know, throw themselves on each other's swords. Yeah. Uh, at which, and they send back to Caesar, well, we, we, we've done it, and we're still not going to name you God. At which point Caesar orders all of them destroyed. And, uh, and one legion goes over, and, and they, they, they offer no resistance. They all go down to a man. Um, and and this, this brings up an aspect of the, of the Holy Lands that George and I tried to figure out in our book, Secrets of the Holy Lands, in that it seems from this point on that, that the spear is very intimately involved in sacrifice. Yeah. That, 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 that wherever the spear goes, there are, there are oceans of blood. And we, we you know, uh, I have heard for decades that a, a number of people think that the, uh, the, 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 the Holocaust during World War II was a covert human sacrifice. Yeah. And that, that rings true. With uh, with the with the spear and and one of the things that that George looked at uh, was perhaps the the spear when it was pierced when it was pressed into the side of God got got God coming through it or rather took an imprint of that moment yeah and that is a, that you know the purpose of the crucifixion where we're told in the Bible was so that so that God could redeem us, that, that, that it was to be the last human sacrifice, that God would sacrifice himself to himself for us. So did, did, the, did the spear take on that need to sacrifice? Did it, did, it, did, it, did it get embodied with sacrifice, but because it's just a hunk of metal, it doesn't really understand yeah. what its message, what it, what, what's going on, yeah. and it just keeps radiating need to sacrifice and that people get it and they, they find themselves, well, let's have a human sacrifice this week. Yeah. Now you speak to uh, the Holy Land sort of as like a, as an opposite or a yin-yang effect with uh, 
with the lost with the lost ark with the law with the holy grail well there are there are a number of tie-ins um very much so um particularly that um the the uh, the ark of the covenant was one of the things the nazis were looking for as uh, you know they had the spear of destiny and and they were looking for uh, all of the great artifacts uh, they were looking for all of the relics of the passion and I'm not really quite sure why, to tell you the truth. Seems like the Holy Lance um, is like an opposite almost of of those other relics too. In that the Holy Lance uh, appears throughout history, but the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail are sort of like so shadowy that you don't have a lot of instances in history where people are saying they have it. It's only like rumored to be had. But with the Lance, uh, there's clear stories of possession. Right, right, and possession is an interesting term in that <clears throat> yeah, sorry um, as as I was writing the book I, I I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan yeah. and I, I've read the Lord of the Rings about 30 times and as I was working on this book it began I began to realize that there were a lot of parallels between the spear and the ring that uh, when when Adolf Hitler first sees the spear in 1907 or 1910 it talks to him it 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 has it, it it takes it takes over his mind and shows him something. Um, uh, there are numerous places. Uh, uh, Constantine repeatedly said that it talked to him. It told him uh, to uh, to abandon Rome and to and to set up a new capital. I know we're jumping ahead a bit here, yeah. but. Uh, uh, it, I began to realize that you know that's what the the ring did. That that I began to see that there were these tremendous parallels between the one ring and um, and the spear. And again, you know, there was an 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 emanating force. There was a an evil spirit behind the one ring, and there seems to be an evil spirit behind the spear. If the stories about the spear are true, that the, there is uh, if the the supernatural that comes through either can be warped or is warped. Yeah, and um, you speak to uh, that they tested the they scientifically tested the Holy Land. Oh right, right. We were we were covering the uh, uh, the, the spear in Vienna. This and and I got off on uh, the the spear in Vienna. We have solid solid evidence of, of uh, solid provenance, uh, a chain of custody on it from uh, from about 1400 to uh, 1938. Yeah. Um, prior to 1400, from 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 800 to 1400, it's it's believed to be the same object. Yeah. That you can you can you can kind of trace back the uh, the, the provenance to, to 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 Charlemagne. Prior to Charlemagne, all bets are off. Um, but we do know that that. Uh, uh, Saint Maurice had some spear, which was believed to be the spear. Yeah. Uh, and then Constantine the Great had had a spear that was believed to be the spear. And you can sort of trace uh, that uh, the spear that you trace has an overwhelming pattern of of uh, war. And like the people that claim it, they don't just claim it, and it's just around. Really, it's a lot. Of, a lot of times, it's it's. Uh, it's an intricate part of their empire building and empire collapse, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, particularly uh, right uh, from uh, uh, right after Constantine, uh, uh, there were numerous 
possessors of it uh, uh, who used it in battle, not necessarily using it as a weapon, but but having it brought with them into battle and having the battles go uh, go their way or not because of 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 it. Yeah. Um, uh, you're uh, by, by asking about the the, uh, the scientific testing. We're kind of you're kind of leaping me here to the end of that trail. Okay. Well, uh, all right, that's okay. I don't well, mind going to the end of the trail. No, let's. Uh, but we gotta, we gotta. We, I think we should come back at yeah, some point. Let's, but uh, but uh, I can I can go ahead and answer that. No, no, no. We'll uh, we'll get to that when we talk about present day spear and um and that stuff. Uh, whenabouts do you think the power of the spear sort of become like uh, like a well-known, I don't want to say urban legend, because back then it was barely urban at all, but uh, when did it sort of become a, a known thing with uh, with Queen Bordesia? Mm, I, you know, I, I don't think so. I, it was probably with, uh, with, with Constantine. Um, uh, what we know about Constantine comes from uh, a, uh, a Christian priest uh, who was sort of so, so imagine if you, you know the relationship between like Billy Graham and American presidents. Well, this priest had that same uh, relationship to the um, latter emperors of the of, of the Roman Empire, and uh, I'm never really quite sure how to pronounce his name. I think it's something like Eusebius, Eubius, Eubesus, Um Eubius of uh, of Caesarea, and he wrote uh, 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 Life uh, of Constantine, um, and uh, uh, in it he is very very adamant that Constantine had the spear of the Christ and knew he had the spear of the Christ and used it in a very dramatic way. It was always marched at the head of Constantine's armies. Uh, when when Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, he held it to he held it in his hand the whole time during the entire conference. Well, let's 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 back up a bit here. Um, Constantine may have gotten it from from his his father-in-law, who was the same Caesar who ordered the decimation of the Theban Legion. Yeah. And we speculate. We, 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 there's nowhere was it recorded how or when Constantine got the spear. So we uh, we attempted to, to to bridge that gap by guessing that if if if, if Emperor uh, if Caesar uh, Max, Maximinius Augustus uh, what. Uh, killed the Theban Legion and they had the spear, it may have been brought to him as a trophy. Yeah. And he may have had a vague idea of what it was about. Uh, we know that Constantine, um, the, 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 the rule of law, uh, the rule of, uh, of the Roman Empire at that point in time is hard to understand. It is so alien to the way we run things. Uh, that it, it, it's, uh, I spent months researching uh, Constantine. Uh, this is the, the, you know, the, the, the book. The publisher wanted the book in two months, and we actually turned it in in six and a half. Oh, wow. and, and most of that time I spent researching Constantine. Oh, wow. Um, uh, the, the, there was an, an emperor, uh, Diocletian, 
Diocletian decided that the empire was simply too big for one man to rule. And much to everybody's surprise, he appointed a co-emperor, um, uh, Max, Maximinus. Uh, and they each, uh, each, each named themselves as being gods. Uh, Maximinus, uh, uh, Max calls himself Hercules, and I forget, uh, uh, Diocletian, I think, called himself Job. Uh, well, after a while, Diocletian uh, gets an illness and um, abdicates and forces Max to abdicate with him. Well, before they do this, they have set up a... a, a, a Diocletian decides that, that two guys, that the empire, the empire is so big, two guys can't handle it. So he, has, he sets up two junior emperors. And so there are two senior emperors and two junior emperors. So they're just setting themselves up for, for turf wars, pretty much. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, um, Di Diocletian takes um, uh, Galerius as his uh, junior emperor, and Max takes Constantine's father, Constantinus Chlorus, as, uh, as his junior emperor. Well, they... Um, uh, uh, a number of strange things happen, and uh, it, it ends up with Max's son holed up in Rome, claiming to be the the one and only emperor, and and Constantinus Chlorus's son uh, being in charge uh, of, uh, of of Constantine Chlorus's army. Uh, Chlorus had just died, uh, and the soldiers proclaimed Constantine uh, uh, emperor. And oddly enough, this, is, this was the norm. Um, the, for the last several hundred years of the empire, the, the, the soldiers proclaimed who the emperor was going to be. The darndest thing. So, so uh, um, Constantine finds himself marching on Rome, and his brother-in-law. <laughs> um, uh, there is a, a famous battle, the, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which uh, uh, the this is where the spear really appears. And uh, if, you, if we have a website, uh, secretsoftheholylands.com, easy to remember is simply spearbook.com. Yes. Type in spearbook.com, it'll take you over to it. And we have an image gallery of, uh, of important images of, of, of all this stuff. And one is a, is a famous painting of Constantine fighting the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And in this painting, you see he's holding the Holy Lands, and there's an angel floating over his head. Oh, wow. Um, now, what had happened was on his way to Rome, Constantine had the spear and had a vision. And this is one of the most famous uh, stories in, in Christendom. Uh, you know, I, I'd heard about it most of my life. Uh, Cornell, Wall, Cornell Wilde starred in a 1960 Bible epic called Constantine and the Cross. Uh, it, it's a sort of an amusing nutty little film. The only thing they get right is the names. <laughs> One scene in the in the movie actually happened in reality, which was Constantine Chlorus's troops proclaiming his son Constantine Emperor. That's the only scene in the entire movie that actually happened. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so um, um, as Constantine is marching on uh, on Rome, 
he, he has the spear and he has a vision and he sees in the sky a sign and he hears the phrase, with this sign you will conquer. Now that, in today's parlance, is clairvoyance and clairaudience. Yeah. He sees a vision. He sees the sign. And the sign is, uh, it looks like a uh, capital P superimposed with a capital X. Uh, it's called the, the, the labrum. And it is uh, the first two letters in the name of Christ uh, written in Greek. Uh, he then had that sign. It wasn't, he didn't see a cross. Uh, even though the movie shows him seeing a cross. He, uh, he sees this, this odd Greek symbol and has the Greek symbol, orders the Greek symbol painted on the shields of all his soldiers. When, uh, when he gets, gets to, uh, to Rome, not only does he, he, uh, he beat uh, his brother-in-law back, but um, in, in the attempt to escape back into the, the, the city, um, uh, the, the would-be emperor finds himself crossing on a, on a bridge of wooden boats, and the, it, it all goes to, to, to hell in a handbasket on him. He falls into the river and is drowned. Uh, Constantine then goes on to become um, uh, uh, one of the one of the two co-emperors. Uh, at that point, there are I think three co-emperors, and of course, you know, three men cannot run a government very well. Yeah. And one of them immediately realizes that that he's at the wrong end of the stick and starts a starts a battle which he which uh, which he can't can't win though uh, he tries and. Um, Constantine goes after him and fights numerous battles and kills maybe a million people. I mean, it's oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some battles in a single day where 25 or 30,000 people die. Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was gruesome. And again, this is the whole the acre, uh, oceans of blood wherever the spear goes. Exactly. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that came up in this is one of the battles is a sea battle in which Constantine has 5,000 ships, his opponent has 7,000 ships, uh, he's uh, way outnumbered, way outgunned, and calls on the spear to help, and a big wind, an immense wind comes up, and doesn't harm any of his ships, but blows the enemy ships all over the all over the sea, uh, drowning five thousand sailors in, in in the afternoon. Nice. Yeah, and then this big wind comes up again. It's it's repeated. There are numerous battles in which the, the spear takes part, in which this big wind appears. And uh, I'm uh, we. We we were astonished to discover that it wasn't a part of the legend, and yet there it is, uh, re re repeatedly occurring. Uh, one of um, one of uh, Con um, uh, Constantine's uh, uh, descendants, uh, one of the about four emperors after Constantine, maybe five emperors after Constantine, goes into battle uh, with the spear and. And uh, the the wind comes up behind him, and he wins the battle because one of the one of the uh, chroniclers of it wrote the the wind was so strong it kept blowing the enemy's swords back into their faces. Huh. Now, one of the things I liked about the book, especially, was uh, how you trace back. You try to trace back a little bit about where the spear may have come from before it even came to launch. And sort of the story that really fascinated me was Tubalcane, right, and the ET metal. Right. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, that was a chapter written by George. 
And I'm not, I, I, I really don't really know any more about it than you do. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, there was, there are a couple of legends as to how the spear got made. Uh, one of the legends uh, uh, mentioned, I believe, in, uh, in the Gospel of Nicodemus is that the spear had, a, had some sort of magic on it, that it had been, it had been given by Julius Caesar to Longinus' grandfather for bravery in battle, and grand, grandfather passed it to father who passed it to son, and that the spear uh, was always sharp. It, it, it never needed sharpening, and um, there were some other aspects. Of, you know, it was a magic spear of some sort or another. Yeah. Um, then there is uh, the the the, uh, the the Tubal Cain story. Uh, one uh, one story of the origins of the spear says that it was in, uh, made by Tubal Cain. Uh, Tubal Cain, the seventh generation grandson of Adam. Uh, of course, has the has the has the, uh, the, the 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 curse of his family on him, and uh, his family is you know his people are not faring well, and in in uh, Hebraic lore, he's seen as the as the as the first blacksmith. He's seen as the as the archetypical worker in metals, and. Uh, I'm sure he is more um, uh, uh, mythological than than real. Yeah. But uh, the story goes that Tubal Cain's people are being overrun by by the other people, and he calls upon God to help him, and a, a burning meteorite falls out of the sky, and he collects up this this meteor metal and fashions. Uh, a spear and a sword, and the sword becomes Excalibur, and the spear becomes the spear of Longinus. Then there's another story, which is the spear of, of Phineas. Uh, Phineas was a, a Hebrew prophet in, way way back in the year Umpteum, and Phineas um, Phineas's spear. Uh, uh, is, uh, is is a, a spear of, of tribal power. Uh, uh, whoever possesses it runs the tribe, and it came down to Herod. And the, the last time anybody knew for sure where it was is, is Herod had it. Uh, so it's not impossible that Longinus may have acquired it from from Herod. We we don't pick up that story for a number of reasons. One is we we couldn't get any good scholarship on it, and we didn't like the tie-in, and and we just ran out of space for it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we, we were we were supposed to turn in a book that was 300 pages, and we turned in a book that was 350 pages. Yeah, so you guys had more than enough stuff. It was even like you had to parse it down anyway, right? Exactly. Um, now, you go through a lot of the different people that had the spear, claimed to have the spear. Right. We, we tried to establish that there's the chain of custody, the, the, the provenance for, for, for the piece. And also, many of the people have, um, have bizarre metaphysical events occur with it. Yeah. Uh, as I said, Constantine was was only one of many who had supernatural phenomena occur. Constantine, as well as winning the Battle of the Milvian Bridge with it, then has it talk to him and tell him that Rome is not appropriate, that that, that Rome won't do as, a, as his capital, and tells him to move it to this little Greek town called called Byzantium, and he moves to Byzantium, and as he's 
as he's laying out the new city, which he, he names Nova Roma, New Rome, he says repeatedly that he's following in the footsteps of him who he sees walking before him. He keeps telling people that I can see Christ walking around, and Christ is telling me how to lay out the city, and I'm just telling you what he's telling me. Oh, wow. Um, uh, uh, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, one of the stories that I actually was really amused by, because it sort of goes against the grain of how everybody wanted the spear, was uh, the Attila the Hun story. It's kind of a short one, but it's pretty humorous. So why Yeah, I, I thought that was hilarious. Um, uh, it goes that um, uh, several, there have been several consecutive rulers of the Roman Empire who have used the spear successfully, um, and one of them uh, had had Attila as uh, one of his um, uh, adjutants, so, you know, one of his, uh, his um, you know, the power, you know, I, I forget military words, you know, like colonel, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, uh, the, the Huns had been a, uh, uh, initially they'd been held out of the Roman Empire, and then they'd been invited in, and when they were invited in, they were, they were made members of the, you know, of the community, which included members of the army, and uh, they were promised that they would be paid, um, and so they fought with the Romans, fought for the Romans, and then they didn't get paid. And then they fought against the Romans and um, uh, kept demanding pay. And, and both, uh, both the Huns and the Romans jacked each other around. They both made promises and then failed to keep them. Yeah. And finally, um, uh, Attila takes, uh, takes Rome. And he's the first guy in 800 years to, to take Rome. And the reason was is because the new emperor was a kid who didn't understand that the power of the spear and his father had had the spear on display in Milan, and the kid left it there. And apparently, Catilla, on his march to, to, um, to Rome, picked it up <laughs> and, uh, and gets, gets to Rome. And the reason he takes Rome is because he has the spear. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, he's in Rome, um, uh, for, for a while, for, you know, for a week, t pillaging and raping, uh, once they've, uh, once they've taken everything that was nailed down, or, you know, everything that wasn't, you know, everything that was movable got moved, yeah. uh, and as they're leaving, he, uh, 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 he rides back and throws the spear into the dust at, at the at the feet of the of the of, of the Pope and says, "Take back your holy lands, so I know not him who made it holy." Yeah, so he just gives it right up. He, he, like, yeah. that's the strangest thing. I really struck me as odd. Um, and then going through who possessed the spirit. Yeah, let me let, let me pick up. Uh, we we after. After Constantine, there is a fairly well-established provenance, a chain of custody for about six or eight emperors, about 300 years worth, more or less. And the last one we know to have it is Justinian. And again, the spear spoke to Justinian and told Justinian that it was okay for him to close down the Hellenistic schools, to, to close to close every, every, every school that was not teaching the Bible. So the Bible became literally the only book you could read. And even then, you couldn't read it if, unless you were uh, of, the, of, the, of the ruling class. Yes. So, so they, the, that's what gave us the Dark Ages. 
uh, 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 Justinian is is revered as one of the greatest people by by the by the Catholics, and just about everybody else thinks he was one of the greatest jerks of all time. Not not only did he did did he um, give us the Dark Ages, but he also gave us uh, uh, a well endowed Islam because. Uh, he was trying to get the, he, he was a Ro, an Eastern Roman emperor and he wanted to rule the entire empire, which the, the, the empire had, had lost the West, western half of the empire for a hundred years. And he squanders a huge fortune and, and fights a battle and does succeed in taking back the western half of the empire. Well, it, and while he's doing this, he's paying off the Persians. To, 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 to not, he's paying them to not invade. So, 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 so the, uh, the the Persians get rich doing nothing, yeah. while he drains the empire. Uh, okay, after him, the, the spirit disappears, and it disappears for three, four hundred years. It disappears uh, for that long a time. Then, how does it reappear after it's uh, gone through the cycle of emperors? You said it disappears for a while. How does it reappear? Uh, nobody really knows. Um, uh, most of the time when people get the spear, it's not recorded how they got it. It's just recorded, oh, and, and our glorious emperor has the spear. <laughs> um, in this case, uh, Charlemagne had himself proclaimed the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire on Christmas Day, 800 AD. And he is uh, dubbed the, the, the emperor by the pope using the holy lance. And nobody really knows how it came to him, but there is, a, there is an, an interesting facet. The, the, he was the king of the Franks, and, and the Franks are the, the people who today are the French and the Germans. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the, the, there were two major branches of the Franks, two major tribes of Franks, and they were the Merovingians and the Carolingians. Um, the, the, uh, the, 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 Mer the Merovingians may, may ring a, a bell with some of your listeners. Uh, if, you, if you saw the, the, the second Matrix movie, a character is named the, the, the Merovingian. Yeah. Um, uh, this is this is a, a nod to, to to conspiracy freaks out there, and particularly <laughs> to the um, uh, uh, Da Vinci Code freaks. Yeah. In that, this, uh, one of the stories related uh, uh, is is that there is this organization called the Priory de Sion, and the Priory de Sion uh, maintains that the 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 Holy Grail was not. A cup to hold the blood of Jesus, it was the bloodline of Jesus. And that Jesus was married to Mary and had children. And the, and the descendants of the, of, of, of the offspring were the, were the rulers of the Franks, were the, were the Merovingians. So the, the last Merovingian king was uh, offed by the Pope, that was uh, Dagobert II. Around uh, around um, around the same time that um, uh, constant or that that Charlemagne proclaimed himself, um, uh, the the two major branches of uh, of the Franks 
uh, the, the, um, uh, the Carolingians had a, uh, a tribal spear that whoever possessed, no, I take that back, the Merovingians had a tribal spear. And the spear was whoever possessed it, like, like the spear of Phineas, whoever possessed it was, was the undisputed ruler of the Franks. And it gave him the power of life or death over all Franks. Well, Constantine one-ups the the the, the, uh, the the tribal spear by pulling the god spear. Yeah, and we believe uh, that the evidence str strongly supports that the, it was it was a scam. It was a hoax, an absolutely brilliant scam. Um, the you, you asked me earlier about the uh, testing of the spear in the, in Vienna. We can establish a fairly a fairly coherent, uh, uh, we can establish the provenance that the that the object in the Vienna Museum was probably, in very high probability, the same spear that dubbed uh, uh, Charlemagne. So from 800 Christmas Day, 800 A.D. to 1938, we have an established track. In 19, excuse me, in 2003, uh, the spear in Vienna was tested. Uh, it was tested by um, um, uh, a team led by um, Dr. Robert Feather. Uh, Feather was was granted very special, very special rights. The the curator of the museum literally walked it across the street to a, a hotel where they'd set up a makeshift lab. Yeah. And Feather was allowed to take off the, uh, remember when, uh, the, uh, we were discussing the image on the cover of the book, Secrets of the Holy Lands, and you see that, that, the, that there's this gold sheaf in the middle. Yes. Well, under the gold sheaf is a silver sheaf, and he was allowed to take those off. Um, apparently what happened is the uh, uh, third Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor uh, got decided that the spear wasn't powerful enough. It wasn't magically powerful enough by itself. And he got, he got a nail from, from the true cross. Now, he had a jeweler insert the nail into the spear. Now, the, the jeweler carved out um, uh, a, a piece of, of the spear to, in order to insert the nail in, and in doing this, weakened it and broke it. Oh, man. Now, the, the, he created... In creating this, this niche to, to put the nail into, he, he created two splinters from the original spearhead. And these two splinters were then made in, uh, they, they made replicas of the spearhead with the splinters in them. And they gave one to the king of Poland, and that spear is, is today in a museum in Poland. And they gave one to the king of Hungary, and that spear has long since vanished. Um, well, when they, when they, put the n n nail into the spear, and it broke the spear, so they then had to wire it all back together with this uh, uh, silver wire, and they put a silver sheath around it to hold it together. Uh, a couple hundred years later, another Holy Roman Emperor decided that the silver sheath wasn't fancy enough, and had a gold sheath made, and on the gold sheath it says in Latin, uh, nail and spear of our Lord. Yeah. Okay, so so that they, uh, Dr. Robert Feather was allowed to take those sheaves off and examine it uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, they, they rubbed a biological swab on it to see if there was any organic matter on it. There wasn't. Um, they 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 did radiofluoroscoping and a number of, a number of things that I have no clue what the heck yeah. they are. 
but they established th th that the spearhead was probably made in the 6th or 7th century. Now, that would make it 100 or 200 years old when Charlemagne claimed it was the, 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 the spear of Christ. Yeah. Um, well, well wrong. You know, it obviously could not have been. Yeah. It, also, it obviously could not have been the spear that, that Constantine had. Now, the, the nail is something else again. Um, the nail does conform to a first century Roman nail, but it's very small. It probably would not have been used in a cross. It was probably more like a pin. It might have been used in, in like a box. Yeah. So it probably had nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. That's, that's what Robert Feather and his team found. Okay. So, so the, the likelihood of the, of the object in Vienna being the object is pretty slim. But there is, there still has been, uh, from 800 to 1900, thousands of stories of, of strange metaphysical supernatural events occurring around this thing. Exactly, yeah. And then it moves on to the Templar Knights, Napoleon, and then right, on Hitler. Right, right. Uh, uh, um, what, what we know is that it, it, it was with the early uh, Holy Roman Emperors, and then uh, it vanished and, and was found a couple hundred years later in, uh, in, the, in the Tyrolean Alps in a little monastery. Oh, weird. But it did have the golden, the golden silver bands, and it was well known that those had been put on the Spear of Christ. Yeah. So, the, so, so the emperor who found it goes, it's got to be it. Yeah. And I think everybody is pretty much on the same page. It's got to be it. So uh, he then took it to Prague, where, which was his capital at the time, and had it on display in Prague, and then it spoke to him. <laughs> and uh, it, it told him that it was in danger there. And so he had it moved to, to the city of his birth, which was Nuremberg. And it was on display in Nuremberg for the next 400 years. Now, while it's on display in Nuremberg, there, it, it, it accrues this, this whole raft of stuff around it. It becomes part of, of what, what becomes known as the, as the Habsburg Regalia, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Reich treasure. And the Reich treasure, it consists of uh, a spear, uh, the, 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 the spear, uh, a sword known as the Sword of Maurice, and nobody's really quite sure why it's called the Sword of Maurice, um, uh, uh, some, uh, an orb, a scepter, several crowns, and a whole bunch of strange, uh, you know, a whole bunch of, 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 of uh, ruling stuff. Yeah. And a whole bunch of religious stuff. Um, uh, um, I, I, it's like, you know, a, a piece of the, of what is purported to be the tablecloth from the Last Supper, um, um, a, a bone from a saint, a, a, a piece of John the Baptist. I mean, it, it, this, this bizarre collection of things. You know, regular Ripley's Believe It or Nuts. Yeah. A cruise around it. Well, by the time by the time Napoleon is on the march, it has been in Nuremberg for 400 years, and the story is known throughout Europe that that whoever possesses the Holy Lands rules the world. I mean, it's it's the object of of the of the Holy Roman emperors, um, and so the people in Nuremberg when when 
Napoleon is marching on Nuremberg, they get word that he wants it, that he's going to Nuremberg to get it. And they go, whoa, if he gets it, he's going to rule the world. Yeah. And so they, they hide it. The, the problem is, is they gave it to a, uh, to a, uh, a certain nobleman who wasn't all that noble. Yeah. And um, he sneaks it across the border into Austria and keeps it safe from everybody. Um, well, uh, Napoleon loses at Waterloo, and uh, uh, the, uh, the Holy Roman Empire falls apart. It ceases to exist. And then the, the nobleman who, who has the, 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 the right uh, treasure collection goes, cool, there's, uh, there's no legal owner to it. I can do what I want with it. And he sells it to the Habsburgs, uh, who have ruled Austria for 400 years and are filthy rich. And uh, and they buy it and put it in their uh, in their palace as a as a as a something for people to file through and pay a couple of shekels to see. Yeah. And that's where it remained until um, un until the Anschluss. Uh, that's where Adolf Hitler saw it the first time in 1907 or 1910. And there are various reports. It's hard to nail down which of those two dates it really was. But uh, Hitler went, uh, uh, was a very down and out. He was a he was a bum living uh, living in flop houses, and uh, he was trying to make it as a painter. He'd been been rejected from going into the uh, uh, art academy, and he blamed the the Jews for for no logical reason for keeping him out of the art academy. And he's trying to make it as a painter, and one day he just has a hissy fit and rips up all his paintings and it's a cold blustery fall autumn day and he goes into the first door he sees to keep warm and it turns out to be the, the museum and he's just sort of wandering around in the museum and he hears a tour group and the tour guide tells the, 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 the you know the points out the, the Holy Lands and then tells the, 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 gr the group he's, he's guiding the, the legend of the lance, which is whosoever possesses this holy lance and understands the powers it serves, holds in his hand the destiny of the world for good or evil. And Hitler goes, whoa! And, he wa and after the tour group moves on, he walks over and looks at it, and he is transported. His, he goes into a trance, and he sees himself as a for uh, in a past life as one of the Holy Roman emperors, possessing the spear and using it as his talisman of power to rule the empire. And he comes back to himself and wonders what the hell just happened. <laughs> yeah. And and goes goes off on researching this thing and becomes absolutely obsessed with it. And uh, let's uh, let's give out your websites here. It's jerrysmith.com, and that's j e r r y e smith.com, s m i t h. And for information about the book, it's spearbook.com. That's s p e a r b o o k dot com. And if you want to just pick up the book, if you want to uh, just call the number, the number is one eight hundred seven one eight. 4514, and that's the Adventures Unlimited press order line. Right, oh, 1-800-718-4514. Uh, call during normal business hours, 
And uh, uh, Beth and Mary will be happy to take your order. Yes, and tell them you heard uh, the interview on Banal of America Audio. Now, uh, to get an autograph copy, go oh, to nice. Spearbook. At spearbook.com, you can get a copy autographed by both the authors. Uh, to get a, uh, if you if you call Beth or Mary at Adventures Unlimited Press at one eight hundred seven one eight four five one four, if you tell them you want an autograph copy, I will autograph one to you. But it won't have George's autograph. You got to go to Spearbook.com to get George's autograph. Okay. Or or you can just go to Amazon.com or you can go to BarnesandNoble.com or you can go to your local Barnes and Noble. It's in all major bookstores. Awesome. And uh, you can get it uh, at at Amazon.com for a discount, but no autographs. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big thanks to Jerry E. Smith for sitting down and talking to us. He's going to be back next week with more. We're going to talk about the spear going into World War II, how Hitler got it, what Hitler did with it once he had it, Himmler and his esoteric interests, the mysterious death of Hitler, where the spear may have gone when Hitler died, the rumors of Nazi Antarctic bases is going to be discussed in depth, and we talk for a good portion of time about uh, Jerry's old friend Jim Keith, the late great Jim Keith. Uh, Jerry tells us about his life and times, uh, real education on someone who, who is sorely missed in the esoteric world, and so much more. That's next week, March 11th, 2006, on Been All of America Audio. Big thanks, of course, to Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BeenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. Check out their columns at BeenAllOfAmerica.com. Check out BanalofAmerica.com for daily updates, all kinds of stuff, satire, columns, feature articles, and tons more. And of course, if you are a frequent BanalofAmerica.com visitor, if you enjoy the audio, if you want to help out a little bit, click the PayPal button at BanalofAmerica.com or the one on our audio page and make a donation to BanalofAmerica.com. Every little bit counts. Every little bit helps. We appreciate it. Much thanks. Thanks to everybody listening out there, all of you who discovered us as a result of last week's big Lauren Coleman interview, or those of you who've been with us all along, thank you so much. We've got tons of great interviews in the pipeline, coming down the pike. Of course, I already previewed next week with Jerry E. Smith, so there's not much left to say for this week. Thanks for listening, folks. This is Tim Benall, signing off.